Okay, so we're in the book of Colossians tonight, and the title of this message is No Longer Enemies. This is the third part in a series we're calling The New Reality, The New Reality. And this is the Apostle Paul, who was commissioned by God to write parts of the Bible. He wrote a letter to this church at Colossae, and this letter that he wrote was to a people group he'd never met. But he was so passionate because of this guy, Epaphras, that visited him in prison and was like, Paul, man, there are things going on. You, like, you would not believe the heresy. You would not believe the, the false teaching and stuff. So we need you to write a letter. And so Paul, out of his love for the church at large, not just in one little local gathering, but the church as a whole, he decided to write this letter to which we owe this writing, the book of Colossians. And so we went through a number of different verses already, kind of the context. And he starts off kind of saying, remember, he says, just because you're saved doesn't mean that's your, that, that you're safe from the enemy's snares. And we have to be alert as Christians, making sure we're not just caught off guard by what the enemy has to throw with us, throw at us. And then last week, we learned about how Jesus is the only revelation of God. There's no other revelation that we'll do. There's no other image of God. There's no other thing that we can look at and say, that's God. It's Jesus and him and alone. And if you uh, want to debate me on that, you can actually listen to the last message and we, and we can talk about it afterwards. And tonight, we're going to read verses 21 through 23. And uh, we'll read verse 19 to 23 for the context. We'll pray and we'll get started. So why don't we read verse 19? <coughs> It says, For it pleased the Father that in him, him being Jesus, all the fullness should dwell. In other words, his presence should dwell permanently in the person of Jesus. And by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated, and en enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight, if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that our body has the capability of healing itself. And we just pray, Lord, I'm going to pray selfishly that you would touch my chest, Lord, so that I'd be able to preach and be able to reach people this evening. And Lord, I pray for every single person here, Lord, we just, we're dying to know, Lord, what it is that you have for us. Lord, that's why we've gathered here on a Friday night. We could be anywhere else, but we said we want to know what the God of the universe has to communicate to his children and so, Lord, we, we think that's so important that we're not just meeting with a book, but we're meeting with the person of Jesus this evening. So, Lord, I pray that I get out of the way. I'm not distracting, but we're able to hear from you. Oh, Lord, just pour out your Holy Spirit in these times. It's so needed, Lord. There are people around us that are dying. A person from my high school just passed away this week. Lord, somebody that people in our fellowship knew and overdose in drugs. Lord, people are dying without hope. And we pray that you would use us, Lord, to be able to show people the hope that's only found in you. We thank you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Everyone said? 
Amen. So there's something that we all do, and if we're honest, we'll probably all feel convicted, but we usually try to ignore it. And that's this thing called littering. Littering. All of us litter, right? If we're honest. And depending on what you believe, some of you may not believe that you litter because the thing that you're throwing on the ground is biodegradable, right? So I, I go climbing a lot. You guys know that. And I had a climbing buddy who I was driving one day with him and we were in the car and then he ate a banana and just took the peel and just threw it out the window. And I was like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, it's biodegradable. It's natural. It's, it's going to go away. Like, I, I don't think it is. I think, like, I know it's natural, but I looked it up. I went on Google. It takes two years for a banana peel to biodegrade. So next time somebody gives you that excuse, you tell them that they're breaking the law and they deserve to get one of those $1,000 fines that probably never happens to anybody. Just so you know, I looked it up. And an apple core takes eight weeks to biodegrade. A plastic bag takes 10 to 20 years. That's like a huge gap. I don't know who came up with that statistic, but 10 to 20 years. And unfortunately, we've seen the ramifications of that, right? According to National Geographic, uh, plastic bags are found in 90% of seabirds. So we see the effects of pollution and what we're doing uh, is actually harming the environment around us. And then if you ever want to know the statistic on chewing gum, which is probably our biggest offense that we just spit chewing gum on the ground. It takes one million years for our chewing gum to biodegrade. Now, I have absolutely no idea how you measure that because I don't think cavemen, if you believe in cavemen, were chewing gum a million years ago. But if you, know, you don't believe in cavemen, you believe in angels, I don't think angels chew gum a million years ago. Or God, for that matter. <laughs> whatever, whatever you do, here's the point. As you litter, unbeknownst to you, even though you don't intend to, you can be actually harming the environment. You are making yourself an enemy of the ecosystem. Whether you like it or not, whether you believe that you're harming the environment or not, by you throwing a plastic, uh, plastic bag into the ocean and choking and killing these birds or uh, sea animals or whatever, you are harming the environment. And in the same way, it's possible by living selfishly, which is what we do, right? Like when we litter, it's because we're not thinking of the environment. We're thinking of ourselves and what's convenient for us. Listen now, it's possible by living selfishly, we can make ourselves an enemy of God. Now, you might think that that was a quantum leap I just did. You're like, I understand the point about littering, offending the environment, how in the world does that mean that I'm an enemy of God? I'm not saying that's the same thing. I'm not saying that when you litter, you're making yourself an enemy of God. But what I am saying is the way that we live can actually put us in a position where we are siding with the world rather than siding with God. And I'll prove that in these verses. And so what Paul does here when he's speaking to the Colossians is he talks about our past condition, our present position, and our future commission. We'll go through each point slowly so you can run them down if you want. But first, we're going to talk about our past condition. Our past condition is that we are actually enemies of God. You don't believe me? Look at verse 21. This is what he says. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. Now that word alienated, it means, according to Thayer's lexicon, that we are shut out from one's fellowship and intimacy. You're shut out from intimacy, shut out from one's fellowship, friendship, etc. 
I remember a Christmas, I think it was a Christmas party, a number of years ago I had with my friend Mike, a bunch of our friends were over, we were just hanging out, lounging on the couch, and then these two girls kind of walk in to the house, and they just go upstairs, and then we all look at each other like, do you know them? Nope. Do you? And like, nobody knew who these people were, but they just walked into his house and went upstairs. About five minutes later, they came back down and like, this is the wrong house. And they walk right back out. So who just casually walks into a stranger's house and just thinks it's fine, right? So why didn't they stay? Well, number one, it'd be creepy. But number two, because it was a foreign place to them, right? They weren't welcome there because they weren't part of the family. They weren't part of the friend group. Now, the commentator Prio O'Brien says this, he says, this word kind of means that you are out of harmony with God. To be alienated as people from God means that you're out of harmony with God. It's kind of like if we were up here and you had the worship team, which sounded awesome, and then out of nowhere, just like Nick Stoltz is just like, I'm going to play a bass solo in the middle of this song. Nothing's holding me back from you, God. Here I go. And he just goes for it. Everyone just stare at him. You're like, what are you doing? Is that even in the same key? Right? He would be out of harmony with the rest of the band. And this is kind of the sense that you get here that we as a people had no idea. Apart from God's saving grace, we have no idea what God is up to in the universe. We have no idea who God is. We're just a far out people. And this is what Ephesians chapter 2 verse 12 says. That at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In other words, to be alienated means that you are unable to access God and his goodness. You're unable and unable to access God and his goodness. It's almost like maybe you've seen these pets, uh, these pets, that's not a word, pets. <laughs> These pets that are stupid, and they wind up like cats just, I was thinking of cat and pet, and it just got mixed up. A cat climbs up a tree, and then what happens? It gets stuck. You got to call 911, call the fire department, because the thing could get up, but it couldn't get back down. I mean, it's kind of like when I rock climb, and sometimes you get scared. You're just like, yeah, I climbed a boulder, and you're up top. You're like, now I have no idea how to get down. It's kind of scary, right? This is kind of the sense of you because of your own free will, decide to go a certain way, and now you have no ability to traverse the way back to perfection. You have no way to access God anymore. And not only are we alienated, but we are also enemies of God. So this word means hateful or hostile. You're hateful towards God. And here's the thing. Many secular people, people that aren't Christian, don't usually think of themselves as enemies of God. Right? You wouldn't I don't know if there's anyone here that's not a Christian that would say, say, like, I am the enemy of God. I am Jesus' worst nightmare. I don't think anyone would say that. And if you do, we probably want you to leave the building because <laughs> that's kind of scary. No, in fact, most people say things like, I don't have a problem with God. You know, remember those Jesus is my homeboy shirts? Like, did anyone remember that? Did anyone wear that? I hope not. They were really cheesy. But that's kind of the way the world views Jesus. It's like, I got no problems with Jesus. Yeah, he's cool. He's my homeboy. Like, if you're not a Christian, I don't know what that means. You don't talk to Jesus. You don't believe in Jesus. So how is he your homeboy? You don't even know Jesus. Well, here's the thing. If you don't believe that you were an enemy of God, here are two ways they were enemies with God. It's right there in the text. Number one, in our minds. Number two, in our works. 
So in the things that we think and the things that we do, in our mind and our works, that's how we're enemies of God. So first of all, our minds. Isn't it true that the wrong things that we do start off as wrong thoughts? Our wrongful actions start off as wrong thoughts. This is what Jesus meant when there were Pharisees that said, like, I've never committed adultery before. And Jesus is like, yeah, you have. If you have lust in your heart, I'm telling you that you've already committed adultery because all the things that need to take place in order for you to actually commit adultery are there. It's all set in your heart. It all starts with the root, and the root is in your heart. Gossip starts with envy, right? You don't just go around and just start slandering people just because you feel like it. Just like, oh, I'm just going to say that that person is terrible. That person is so ugly for absolutely no reason. It starts with things like covetousness, envy, you're jealous, like, oh, man, I can't believe that guy is giving that girl that, all that attention, so I'm going to say something about her, you know? Same thing with anger. Anger often leads to lashing out. But oftentimes, people don't just lash out for no reason. And this is why when you do criminal investigations, you're looking for the motive. It's not a sufficient answer for people to like have a jury and stuff and kind of just like you take the person aside and like, why did you kill all those people? Oh, there was no reason at all. That person we would call psychotic. But usually there is some kind of motive that drives each and every one of these actions. Believe it or not, even the organization ISIS is fueled by ideas. And so you can see how ideas, the things that you think, can have consequences on the things that you do. And this is how the Bible says we start off as enemies of God in our minds, in the things that we think, the dreams that we have, the things that we hold dear, near and dear to our hearts, are things that are contrary to God and his purposes. <coughs> so this word mind is talking about your heart. It's talking about your thinking. It's talking about the totality of the person, not just your thoughts, okay? So it's talking about where do you place the burden of your investment? <coughs> so that being said, let's go a little bit de deeper. What kind of idea could actually make us enemies of God. I understand, okay, I understand what you're saying, what you think can make you God's enemy, but I'm not so sure that I am God's enemy, right? What kind of idea could we have that would make us in that position? This is what James chapter 4 verse 4 says. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So this is the problem. When you side with God's enemies, you're automatically God's enemy. If you are a friend of the world, in other words, I'm not talking about like earth. That's not what James is saying. Like when you are a friend of the world, you, have to, you can't be a friend of the world. You have to be an alien, like an actual alien. That's not what he's saying. He's saying when you subscribe to the world system, its beliefs, when you side with the powers of sin and darkness, you in fact are a part of their team by being their friend. <coughs> so what is the context of that verse? Let me give it to you. James chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? So anyone want to know the answer to why there are wars in our world today? Anyone want to know why there's ISIS versus America versus the world? Or you want to know why there are countries at war or even people fighting with each other? It says, 
Do they not come from desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. So why would we befriend the world? Because we believe the world has what we really want. Ah, now it makes sense. The reason why I would side with the world is because the world appeals to everything that my heart wants. The world says, oh, I can give you fame. I can give you money. I can give you love. I can give you everything that you're really looking for. But it lies to you. And we believe if we just side with the world, even for a little bit, like if we just kind of do what it wants us to do, then we'll get what we really want. I love what Tim Chaddock says. He's a pastor at a church called Reality. He says, the lie from Satan is that we can have what we really need apart from God. And that's the lie. Because you see, first of all, there might be people here like, I don't really care if I'm an enemy of God. I don't even believe in God. But here's the thing. Every good and, good and perfect gift, the Bible says, comes from above. That God is a good God and your life is given to you from God. Your family is given to you by God. Even your imperfect family and friends, like even if you're in a situation that is harmful, there are good things about those harmful things too. And we can be thankful for good days. We can be thankful that we wake up and we have breath in our lungs. Everything that we have is given to us by God himself. And yet the world says, but if you turn to us and you listen to our way of thinking, if you pursue us, I'll show you what's really important. And we believe by escaping God, moving God out of the picture, we'll be able to fulfill our heart's desires and dreams. So in fact, what happens? Now God is our obstacle. Because God says, I can't have sex when I want with whoever I want. Why? Doesn't it seem like God just killing my joy? Like why would God tell me that I can't do stuff? Not knowing that anytime that God says no to something, it's because he said yes to something else. And that God is for your joy, not against it. And I've used this analogy before, but I'll say it again. Think about this. If everyone just obeyed that one commandment, like don't have sex outside of marriage, you wouldn't have any STDs. You'd have vastly reduced numbers of unwanted pregnancies and therefore abortions. You wouldn't have any adultery. Like no one would be having sex with people outside of their marriage. And then you have to ask yourself, in that world without STDs, without people cheating on each other, committing adultery, without vastly num uh, a vast number of unwanted pregnancies, unwanted babies, abortions, have to ask yourself, is that world better or worse than the world we're in right now? Because you see, God is for your joy. And when we keep giving our heart to so many different people in sexual relationships, we don't see that we're, that's why the Bible says, like, when you commit sexual sin, it's against yourself. Because your heart goes with that person. We're never meant to just be tossed and turned from every single person that we meet. We're not supposed to be ripped from relationship. We're supposed to be in committed relationships where we can trust and know that this person is with me for life. That's what God wants you to experience. A relationship where you're safe. That though they're going to hurt you, just like any human being does because we all sin, right? But you can be in a relationship where you're loved and you don't have to fear the abandonment. That the minute I don't look good enough, the minute I don't say things well enough or do things that they want me to do, that they're just going to toss me and turn to somebody else. I mean, what kind of relationship is that? Constant fear. Yet God doesn't want you to experience that. He has a better way. Yet the world says this. 
See, God wants to limit your freedom, and now you can't do the things you want to do. But I'd actually venture to say that that's not really freedom because you are still a slave of something, aren't you? Which is the need to be fulfilled by all these different people. And you can't. In fact, you're prohibited from seeking what you really want. What I'm trying to say is, whenever you seek a good thing apart from the God who gave it, you will always misuse it. Whenever you're looking for a good gift that God gave you originally, like God gave us instructions on how to use these great gifts that we have, money, like it's not supposed to be for yourself. He said it's better to give them to receive. Yet the people think it's all about gaining. If I can just get enough money, which what does that mean? If I can just have enough stuff, then I'll be happy. But Jesus says, no, there's joy in being able to give to other people, give to the poor. Even secular people recognize this. The times that they go off and like, you know, you could be Lady Gaga and she just, uh, just spent some time um, at a homeless shelter for some people. And she was giving over time and it was rewarding for her. Like even people in the world recognize that. But what God's saying is there's a better way to do things than what you have planned. And that's because I'm a good God who's perfect and I have the instructions on how to do it. So here's the thing. For us as human beings, what starts out as seeking becomes serving. What started as I was just seeking these things out, you know, I was just pursuing love. I was just, now it becomes serving that thing. I remember like there was a time in, in day where I was just seeing if I was interested in photography. And I was like, you know what? Maybe I'll just like take pictures for fun. I would never want to make it a job, but just, you know, see what happens. But the more time you invest in that thing, the more you're just like, but maybe I could be a photographer. And maybe, and then people are telling me that I'm pretty good at it. Maybe I could make some money on this. And before you know it, now you spent thousands of dollars on equipment and you're thinking about it and you're like, well, now I have to be a photographer because if I don't, then I spent all this money and time and energy. And because the more that you seek something, the more you actually serve something. Like I thought for a second that it was just a hobby. But now it seems like I'm enslaved to the thing. Like I have to be a photographer now because it's too late and I can't back out. And for many of you, that could be a relationship. That you're, the person you're with right now isn't like your ideal person, but you're with them because you've always been with them. I know many relationships like that. It's just kind of like, eh. It's like it'd be too much hurt and pain to break up, so we'll just tolerate the pain of being together. That, that's not a relationship to enjoy. That's not what God meant for you and I. And this is what Jesus said about this. He said this in Matthew chapter 6. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where you put your investment, where you put your time, your energy, your money, all those things, your heart, your heart follows. Jesus also said a couple of verses later, he said, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. In other words, you cannot serve God and money. Mammon is just another word for money. You can't, do, you can't serve two masters. You don't have a choice about that. It's kind of like saying, you know what? Um, I like Iraq, and I like America, so I'm going to serve ISIS and America. I'm going to serve both. I'm not going to choose a side. I'm just going to, you know, serve both. You can't do that. There is no possible way in which, like, one of the two people groups is going to call you a traitor or think you're a spy or something. You can't serve two masters. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, I'm not anyone's master, or I'm not anyone's servant. I don't serve anybody. Well, you just gave it away, didn't you? You serve yourself. 
which is exactly the way of the world. The way of the world is you can do what you want, whenever you want, and you don't need God to tell you what to do. But what God has for us is, no, actually, if you die to yourself, like if you lay down your life for others, and what I'm not just talking physically, what I'm saying here is you actually give your heart for other people and you love God and love those people, that's the way to live. And like I said, you guys know that it's rewarding when you go out to, for instance, the Barry Mission or, or you go to New York City and you help the homeless or you do, the, um, uh, you do these different outreaches at the soup kitchen. You guys know that's rewarding. And what God's saying is, see, there's a better way to live than to live for yourself. See, living for yourself is kind of like slavery because the more that you live for yourself, the more you're not satisfied because you're always having to measure up to the standard that you yourself made. I'm just like, well, I have to look this certain way because that's what the magazine told me. And I have to talk a certain way because that's what the music told me. And we're constantly evaluating our lives based on what we think is adequate. Whereas in God's economy, he says, no, you're accepted. I love you just the way you are. So we're enemies in our minds and we're also enemies in our works. Enemies in our works. Let me ask you a question. Don't raise your hand. Has anyone here never sinned? Anybody? You know what? Don't raise your hand. Never sinned. Sin, in other words, a wrong action, a bad deed. And I, I think all of us would say, like, no, we've all made mistakes before. Now, this is different than junior high ministry. In junior high ministry, I've had kids tell me, like, yeah, I've never sinned before. Yep, it's never happened. Actually, there's one kid who says, Alan, I've never said a bad word before. I've never cursed. I'm like, oh, really? Five minutes later, he said the S word. I was just like, like what just happened? Because we I think we were talking about the Ten Commandments. Like, have you ever broken the Ten Commandments? He's like, nope. I've never done I've never broken the Ten Commandments. Okay. Well, here's the thing. Maybe you're thinking, well, yeah, but everyone makes mistakes. Yes. But the thing is, the problem is many of us don't see our mistakes as character formation. In other words, this is what I mean. When we make a mistake, we think that that's an exception to the rule. We're normally a good person, and that's just, you know, every now and then I did something I didn't want to do. But if you look at human nature and you look at the teachings of Scripture, actually your mistakes constitute your character the more that you do them. Isn't it true that the more that you lie, the easier it is to lie the next time? The more that you engage in an activity, hey, listen, doing drugs the first time, it may be pretty easy to resist, but the more and more you do it, the more that you're enslaved to that drug, alcohol, whatever it is. The more that we abuse things, the easier it is. When you're an angry person, it's because you're always angry in certain situations. Well, this is what the Bible says. In Romans chapter 1, it says that, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. In other words, this is what happens. People chose to do their own thing apart from God. Say, God, thank you very much for creating me. I want to do my own thing. I want to live the way that I want to live. And as they did, God says, fine, you can do your own thing. I'm going to give you free will. You can make that choice. But the problem is, as your mind does those things, or as your mind wants to do those things, your actions follow, and you become a person that you never wanted to be. This is why the Bible in James chapter 1 says, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth 
death. At first, it was just a white lie. I just didn't want to hurt their feelings because they asked me a question. I'm just like, eh, you know, it's fine. Yeah, nobody ever said that about you. And, and then before you know it, you're always telling lies. In fact, isn't it true that if our most important priority is ourself, we'll do anything, including lie, including manipulation, so that we keep ourselves on top? If your chief priority is yourself, like the world tells you, like, just live for yourself, then that means you're not going to pay attention to your family. When you get older, you have a family, you have a job, you're going to be, if your priority is making the most money, you're going to sacrifice time with your family. And you're going to become the person that you never wanted to be. My dad was never at home, you might say. But if your priority is seeking yourself, before you know it, you become more like that person that you never wanted to be. Another issue in our day is pornography. People say, well, it's only, it's, it's a private thing. You know, like, it doesn't really affect anybody else. Yes, it does. Because the more that you do it, the more it changes your opinions of other people. Before you know it, you start looking at people like objects instead of, instead of human beings. Even the secular world recognizes this. There are so many people in the world right now that are making a move against pornography, trying to outlaw it because they recognize the damage that it does to human beings. Oh, it's just, you know, it's not really affecting anyone. Yes, it is, because there's always a victim when there's sin. Listen very carefully. If you believe that when you make mistakes, nobody is hurt, you fooled yourself. Because whenever there's wrongdoing, there's always a victim. So if we're honest, we're much worse people than we think we are. I love what uh, Stephen Covey says. He's not a Christian, but I love this quote. He says this. We judge ourselves by our intentions and others by their behavior. So when I look at somebody else, I'm like, I can't believe that person lied. Can you believe that person's dressing that way? Oh, can you believe what that person did? And then when you do the same thing, it's like, oh, well, I have a good heart. God knows me. God won't judge me. It's like, no, I think we're all doing the same thing. And we've made ourselves enemies of the creator by living in this selfish way, in our minds, in our works. But here's the good news. So if I've depressed you, Here's good news. This is why he says in this verse, in 21, and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. At one time, this happened. But what you see, yet now, in verse, the end of verse 21, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. The good news is that Jesus Christ paid your debt in full, that he was the one who died in your place, took the punishment for your sin so you wouldn't have to. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, it says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. In other words, by his sacrifice. It's not like this weird mystical thing like the blood, like there's magic in the blood. Like there are some people that believe that, like you have to, like, it's the actual blood, and that's why they believe when you take communion, it turns into real blood. I don't believe that, but that's what they believe. And because the real physical blood of Jesus actually, no, it's, it's just talking about what he actually did 2,000 years ago. That sacrifice is atoning for our sin. So how did he do it? How did he atone for our sin? It's right there in the text. In the body of his flesh through death. Now, that sounds redundant, right? The body of his flesh. Obviously, we have bodies, and obviously, they're made of flesh. 
But remember, Paul is writing to this church that was believing a lot of weird doctrine. And one of those weird doctrines was Gnosticism, which is this belief that's saying like, oh, you know, God's up here and that's spiritual. And down here we're all physical and we're all sinful. And so the flesh is bad and the spirit is good. And so they didn't believe it was possible that Jesus was actually a physical being. They, they didn't believe that he was a man. Because if he was a man, then he had to be sinful, obviously, because the flesh is bad. But what the, what the Bible says is, no, God created us good, and we broke ourselves. We are the ones that made the mistakes and ruined the good thing that God gave us. It's good to enjoy uh, the bodies that we have in the environment that God has set us in. And so here's the thing. If Jesus did not become a man, then he would not be able to atone for our sins. I remember thinking, like, when I was a child, I was like, maybe when Jesus was on the cross, he used his superhuman God powers to numb the pain or something. And we all just made to believe that he was suffering. Maybe. This is me, like, as a five-year-old philosopher, right? But here's the thing. If that was the case, then Jesus could never atone for our sins. He had to suffer physically. He had to become a man to take the place of you and I. And he did that through his death. Through his death. Now, that sounds strange, right? Why did Jesus have to die for our sins? Because maybe you're not a Christian here today and you're just like, that just doesn't make any sense. Okay, I know I've done things wrong, but did it really cost Jesus' death? Or why, did, like, why does anyone have to die? That doesn't really make any sense. Well, let me try to break it down in a concept you can understand. We all understand this concept of paying people back a debt, right? So let's, for instance, use money. If I borrow a dollar from DJ... I have to pay DJ how much back? A dollar. Very good. Math students, paying attention. Now, if I gave DJ $100, we would say that what? I gave him too much money, and then he probably have to give me $99 back. Easy. So, like, if I took something from DJ, I should be able to give something of equal value back to DJ. That's what it means to pay someone back. But now, think about this question. How do you measure the debt of pain? How do you measure the debt of pain? It's easy to say, like, if I took a dollar from DJ, I'd have to give a dollar back. But what happens if I hurt DJ? Now what do I do? Well, we know that there's, like, in the Bible, there's an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, right? So, like, if I punch DJ in the face, he should punch me back, right? So that should be, like, the rule. Like, I punch, he has to do, like, equal damage back. Like, it would not be enough if I'm just like, all right, we're going to torture DJ for the next 10 years because he punched me once. Right? That, that would seem like unfair treatment. But let's get away from physical pain for a second. And what if I gossip about DJ? Now, now what happens? What would be equal punishment back? It seems like putting DJ to death for gossip seems unjust, right? We would all agree with that. That is not fair for that one little mistake. It seems over the top. But now it seems like if you look at Dylan Roof, right, that crazy dude who went into uh, a church and just shot a, a whole bunch of people uh, because of his racist, you know, standings or whatever, that person is on, on trial right now for the death penalty. And it seems like there are some cases in which we're okay with ending a person's life for a crime that's that atrocious. But obviously that's not sins that we do, right? Like, we don't do that. I didn't go around shooting people. So I should not be punished in that kind of a way. So what should be the debt that we pay? Because we're talking about human beings. In, in that case, what should be the debt for your sin against an infinite God? 
Now we're talking different terms, right? We're not talking about human beings. We're talking about God. What should be my debt for the sin that I commit against an infinite God? Well, Jesus showed us the price tag for our sins when he paid for it with his death. When Jesus died on the cross, what he's saying is, I didn't just die for your sins. I died for the sins of all humanity. And listen, your sin is bad, a lot worse than what you think it is. Because even if you disagree that your sin is that bad, isn't it obvious that Jesus' death, pay attention, is exactly what the enemies of Jesus wanted? Think about this. Jesus, when he was on trial, he had, there was a choice. Like Pontius Pilate said to the Jewish people, he said, all right, you can choose to set one person free, this murderer Barabbas, or you can set Jesus Christ free. Who do you want? And they took Barabbas instead of Jesus. And what did they say about Jesus? They said, crucify him. Remember, there are people that wanted to kill Jesus, wanted to betray Jesus because they were jealous, because they thought he was in the way of their dreams, in the way of their plans, taking all the attention, taking all the spotlight. But isn't that what we do? When we make ourselves a friend of the world, we're partnering with the enemies of Christ, saying, God, you are in the way of my plans, my dreams, and I need you to get out of them. So whether we believe it or not, here's the thing. We've made ourselves in the position of the enemy of God, and we are part of the system that put Jesus on the cross, the death of God, because we said we want to live without rules. We want to live free from the tyranny of God, you know. But we've believed the lie. And that's the lie of saying that you can get what you really need apart from God. The good news about this is this. What does Jesus ask of you? He died on the cross for your sins. And did he say, well, now this is what I want you to do. If I punch DJ in the face, he can punch me back. That's what I want you to do from now on. Just like, don't mess up anymore. Is that what Jesus said? No, he said, now, because I've shown you grace, I want you to show others grace. See, Jesus took the punishment for your sins so that you wouldn't have to take punishment anymore. And you could show that same forgiveness to other people. So now if I get punched in the face, I can turn the other cheek. That's what Jesus said. He said, now the law is love. It's not about trying to get back what you are owed, but because God forgave you of an infinite debt, there's no debt that you can forgive that's enough to cover the same debt that God paid of yours. See, unless we understand how bad our sin is, we'll never forgive other people for the sins they commit against us. Isn't it true? Like, when someone hurts you, you're like, I don't know if I could ever forgive that person because you don't know what they did to me. You don't know how bad my dad hurt me. You don't know how bad that friend betrayed me. And when we talk like that, what we're missing out on is how we've committed sins against God. I'm not trying to minimize your sin, but what I'm saying is if you put it in its perspective, we realize, man, God, even though this person did this terrible thing to me, I can't believe that I've committed atrocious things to you, and yet you still love me and forgave me. Like, I'm finding it so hard to forgive this person. How is it possible that you forgave me of sin? How is it possible that you still love me? This is the love that even Gandhi saw. This is his quote, Gandhi, not a Christian, Hindu, obviously. He said this, Jesus was a man who was completely innocent, offered himself as a sacrifice for the good of others, including his enemies, and became the ransom of the world. It was a perfect act. I love this. This is what Jesus does for us. And he didn't just die, but he died for a purpose. And look what that purpose is in verse 22. It says, he died in the body of his flesh, or 
He has reconciled us in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. See, it's not about you trying to become better anymore. Now you're free from that expectation. You don't have to be a good person to come to church. And there might be some of you here that are like, I don't know if I fit in here because I still, like, I still want to do bad things. Or I still want to do things in the world. Or I, I just have all these dreams and aspirations and I feel like God might get in the way of those things. Listen, you don't have to be perfect, but you at least have to be willing to acknowledge that Jesus is the treasure that you're looking for. To say, like, I understand, like, there are things in the world that are lying to me, telling me that what you really want is out here. But I know, I know that there's a good God who has really given me good things and wants me to seek him. And he died on the cross for me. That's how much he loves me. I don't need to, leave, I don't need to look anywhere else. And the reason he did this is to present us holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. You have this imagery of sacrifice. Remember the sacrificial system in the Old Testament if you're a Bible scholar. So you have these priests that were offering up these lambs without blemish, without spot. And here, Jesus is presenting us as a living sacrifice to live for him. Except here's the thing. We're already holy. We're already blameless in his sight. You don't have to make yourself any better. But we must choose to leave the old life behind. You and I have to be willing to leave the old life behind. It's not enough to say like, yeah, thank you, Jesus, for the cross. I want to keep on doing sin and like that's fine. But at least acknowledge saying like, Lord, I know these things not only hurt you but hurt other people and hurt myself. I don't want to live a lie. I don't want to live for myself. I don't want to have to feel like I always have to measure up you're constantly depressed because you look at everybody else's life and it seems like everyone else is perfect and you're the only one who's hurting. Well, here's the thing. God loves you just as much as he loves the next person. And he wants you to live that life full of hope and leave the old life behind. Here's a quote by A.W. Tozer, and we're going to be closing here. It says, In coming to Christ, we do not bring our old life up to a higher plane. We leave it at the cross. We who preach the gospel must not think of ourselves as public relations agents sent to establish goodwill between Christ and the world. We are not diplomats, but prophets. And our message is not a compromise, but an ultimatum. God offers life, but not an improved old life. The life he offers is life out of death. So lastly, we have our commission. Tonight, we learned a lot of different things. We learned about our past condition, our present position, and lastly, our commission. And that's in verse 23. It says, If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Remember, he's saying, like, there are so many people that want to distract you from what's really important. There's so, like, media is all meant to distract you. That's it. Like, they want you to believe the lie. And you're going to watch a movie, you're going to listen to a song, and you're going to be like, oh, yeah, that's really, like, if I only had that one thing, I would be happy. And we believe it. But if that was true, then why are celebrities some of the most depressed people on the planet? Why do they commit suicide if money, sex, and power was really what we wanted? And yet these people that have everything that we, we think that we want are often the people that are suicidal, depressed, lost, without hope. And yet what God is saying is you need to persevere. You need to remember what's really important. And that, so that's why he's saying you have to continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast. So what this is not saying 
is that you need to make sure, like, all right, you need to make sure your salvation's secure. Are you praying the sinner's prayer every single day? Are you making sure, like, you're not going to, like, one day become apostate? This is not what he's saying. He's saying this is the test to see if you're really with God or with the world. What will happen when the storm comes? This is the parable that Jesus came, gave. He said there was a man who built his house on sand and a man who built his house on the rock. And when the storms came, both of them had great houses, but when the storm came, the one that was built on the sand eroded away because it had no foundation. And that was a parable to illustrate what is your foundation? Is your foundation in God or in what God can give you? Very important. Everyone look up here. So important. Is your foundation in God or in what God can give you? Because if your foundation is in what God can give you, here's the problem. When the storm comes and you don't get what you want, you'll see God as in the way of what you want. And that's why you're going to leave. But the person who says, you know what? I don't have it all figured out. Oh, Lord, help me. I know I'm not strong on my own. I don't, I don't have the ability to stand on my own two feet. That's where if you build your house on the rock, on the foundation that's Jesus, you're going to make it through whatever storm it is. Listen, you're afraid of the world. You're afraid of college. You're afraid of people out there that are going to trick you or fool you. The good news is that Jesus is stronger than any of those things. Jesus said, he who is, greater, uh, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And you have that promise from God that you can persevere to the end. That no one is able, no one's strong enough to snatch you from his hand. But you have to ask yourself, am I in Christ? Everyone needs to ask themselves that question tonight. Are you hidden in Christ? Have you given your life to Jesus to say, my life is not my own? Not like I'm, I'm becoming this other person, like I'm becoming like this other person that's not me. But by giving your life to Jesus, you become who you're always meant to be. I'll give you a perfect illustration, extreme one, perfect illustration. And I'm saying this because, like I said, there's a girl in our high school graduating class that passed away this week over a drug overdose. If you've ever known an addict, the more they engage in drugs, do they become who they're meant to be? Do they become who they really are? No. If anything, they become a different person, a person we don't know. Like, if you have ever known a person like that, you watch them become a different person, and you don't enjoy it at all. Like, what happened to the person I, I loved, the person I knew, and now they are a slave to this thing? And we say, well, I'm not an addict, but at the same time, isn't it true that when we pursue these things that aren't God, we become different people, and we sacrifice so many other things to get what we really want? Maybe you know a friend who, like, fame got to them. Like, at first, they were your best friend, and before you know it, like, now they're talking to the popular kids at school. They're not becoming who they were always meant to be. They're becoming a different person, a false person. But when you pursue the Lord, you find your giftings, your calling. You find the love that's not based on your merit. In other words, it's not based on what you do, but it's based on the fact that you are a child of God. You were bought at a price, and therefore we're supposed to live our lives to the glory of God. So what do you have to do? You just have to confess your sins to him. That's it. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, in other words, you say, you are my Lord. I'm your servant. I want to serve you, not the world. 
and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In other words, you're believing in Jesus. You're not believing in Gandhi. You're not believing in your mom. You're not believing in people that can't save you. Gandhi didn't die for you. Muhammad didn't die for you. None of them. Muhammad didn't even claim to be God. But Jesus did, and he proved it 2,000 years ago when he was raised from the dead. So you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What is confession? Confession is the word homologia. In the Greek, it means saying the same thing, which means instead of being alienated from God, you're saying, God, I want to bring myself into your family, and I want to recognize what you recognize. I didn't think my, th- my sin was that bad, but I want you to show me. I want to know what you know, and I want to live the way that you want me to live. Would you please help me? I recognize, like, what I've done is wrong. I am a sinner. I'm not just, like, a basically good person that sometimes makes mistakes, but I recognize I'm selfish, I'm proud, and I'm insignificant without you. Would you make me one of your children? Would you adopt me into your family? Let's pray.